Well, through my reading and preparation for this morning, I was reminded of a well-known English poet of the 1800s named William Blake. He was buried in London's famous Bunhill Cemetery near some of the great old saints, including John Bunyan, John Owen, and Susanna Wesley. Now, two things stand out to me when I think about William Blake's life. The first is actually how he died. So apparently, on August 12, 1827, he worked relentlessly on a project until he laid down his tools and began singing hymns that he absolutely loved and started quoting verses that were near and dear to his heart. In fact, we actually have an account of all of this because George Richmond, a close friend, says in a letter to another close friend that William died, as I must say, in a most glorious manner and kept saying that he was going to that heavenly country that he wished to see all his life and expressed himself happy, joyful, and rejoicing, longing for the salvation that was his through the Lord Jesus. And just before he died, his countenance became fair, his eyes brightened, and he burst out singing of all the things that he saw in heaven. Now, don't you want to die like that? I mean, can you even imagine having such clarity on the salvation of your soul at the revelation of Jesus Christ that you burst out in song as the fullness of that salvation approaches? So for William Blake, the living hope that Peter's going to talk about this morning and the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for him were so real that his countenance became fair. His eyes brightened and he burst out singing. Now that doesn't mean William Blake didn't experience real trials in life. In fact, just like the rest of us, he had firsthand knowledge that the road to heaven is paved, paved with earthly sorrow. So it was William Blake who penned these glorious words, for joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine that under every grief and pine runs the joy with silken twine. It is the right that we should know that man was made for joy and woe. And when these trials we rightly know, through this world we safely go. How true is that? And yet trials still catch us by surprise, don't they? Which is why we're so often anxious, worried, and afraid, when instead they should be the constant reminder that Christ came to save our souls for all eternity. That's the fourth reason Jesus came to die. Number four, to save our souls. And William Blake understood that, and he sang about that even as he was dying. But Peter is going to try and teach us that glorious truth this morning, that the trials of life should be expected, even anticipated, but that they come with a divine purpose to confirm our faith is truly in the Lord Jesus and to prepare us for heaven so that we might have, even in this life, an eternal perspective. Living all of life free from anxiety, worry, and fear, knowing one day we will see our Savior face to face so that even now that truth would cause us to rejoice with joy inexpressible. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, 1 Peter chapter 1 is on page 1014. Also encourage you to grab my outline from the bulletin. It's a bit of a road map of where we're going this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Allow me to read verses 3 to 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter begins by encouraging his readers to praise God which, of course, is always the right response, regardless of what's going on in your life. But it's particularly helpful when your hearts are weighed down because of suffering, so the trials of life. 
But notice how he doesn't just encourage them to praise, praise God, but he gives them very specific reasons why they should, starting in verse 3. Right? The fact that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, what exactly does it mean to be born again? Well, you can't hear those words without thinking immediately of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Right? Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, of course, completely blown away by the idea, says, you know, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can an old man be born again? Is he supposed to climb back into his mother's womb? Obviously taking Jesus literally. But then Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you do not hear the sound of it. In fact, you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone, clarifying who is born of the Spirit. Do you see, that's the glorious work of God in a person's life. The Spirit of God moving over a person's dead soul and causing them to live, causing the flat line of their spiritual pulse to start beating. Just think about Ephesians chapter 2. It tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath until, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, makes us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So salvation is all of God, and it's according to God's great mercy, which means it's not according to your effort. It's not according to how hard you work or how much you clean yourself up or how much you hide from your sin or how many people you get to agree with you and tell you how great you are and that you're going to be totally fine when you die. It's not according to any of those things. Instead, it's according to God's great mercy mercy, who causes us to be born again to a living hope. Now let me just pause to clarify. That doesn't mean that you're not absolutely responsible to still respond to the message of the gospel. The Bible has absolutely no tension whatsoever holding those two things together, God's sovereignty over all things, including your salvation and man's responsibility. You're free to do whatever you want. But if you're honest and you look at your life and you stand outside of faith in Christ, then what you want to do is have this life filled with unbroken pattern of disobedience to what God is calling you to do, which is sin. Wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus himself appeals to you on the basis of that reality to repent and believe the gospel. God is sovereign, and yet the ball is in your court. You need to respond to the Lord Jesus. So yes, God is sovereign, but you're not called to climb into the mind of God and try to determine whether or not he's chosen you from before the foundation of the world or caused you to be born again. Instead, he calls you to respond to Jesus. Jesus came to die to save your soul. Respond to him. You might ask, why would I respond to it? Well, look at some of the glorious reasons that Peter gives us in our passage this morning, including being born again to a living hope. Think about that description for a moment. It's not a dead hope. It's not a wishful hope. Certainly not hope against hope which is what somebody says when they don't really expect for what they're hoping for to come to pass. They say it's hope against hope. But Peter says believers are born again to a living hope, a sure hope, a steady hope, a hope that is grounded and immovable. You know, Ed Clowney says it this way, so helpful that it's a hope that holds the future in the present because it's a hope that is anchored in the past. 
And why is that? Why is it a living hope? Because we have a living Savior. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Which is why, by the way, Easter is so critical to our faith. Jesus didn't go into the ground and die and stay there. He rose on the third day. Jesus is alive. But now put that, this all together. Because Peter was there. So he heard from the woman who saw the empty tomb. And he raced John to the tomb so that he could see for yourself. Remember that scene? John getting there first but waiting. Peter rushing right in, seeing the linen cloths lying there. Then later on that evening, he sees the risen Christ who appears that night in a locked room, shows him his hands and his side. Peter's talking about something he's seen. Sight of the living Lord. And now he writes to us about a living hope to encourage these dear believers to persevere in the faith, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of persecution. How does he encourage them? By giving them an eternal perspective that Jesus came to save their souls for all eternity. So the glory of our salvation, A, God causes the new birth, causes us to be born again to a living hope. Now B, God provides a glorious inheritance because the object of their living hope is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them, which forces us to look up from the trials of the here and now and start setting our hopes, our desires, our affections on an internal inheritance. We all know what an inheritance is, right? It's all the property and all the possessions and all the stuff that's passed along when a person dies to the people who are still alive. If you think about the Old Testament, the prophets were constantly talking about the promised land as Israel's inheritance. But the striking contrast here is that these believers have been born again not to obtain some physical inheritance or even some earthly property in the land of Canaan, but instead to obtain an eternal inheritance. And not when someone else dies, but when they die. So the inheritance doesn't come to them, but they go to it. They go to the inheritance, no longer living as aliens and strangers in this world, but going home to the city of God where they will receive this heavenly promise. Look at the description. He starts by telling us it's imperishable. This inheritance is not subject to decay. It doesn't wear out over time. Helpful to know, the New Testament only uses this word for eternal realities, like the Word of God in our resurrected bodies, whereas all earthly possessions will either rot or burn or be destroyed. We know that from Jesus, right? He warned us, Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead, what are we called to do? Lay up your treasures in heaven. Another way for us to say, keep your eyes fixed on an eternal perspective. But it's not just imperishable, is it? It's undefiled, which means that it's unpolluted by sin and contains nothing unworthy of God's approval. So it's holy and it's righteous and it's good. And it's not only imperishable and undefiled, but it's unfading. So it's nothing like the things on this earth at all. Think about the things of earth. How would you describe them over time? Everything that I could think of withers or weakens or worsens. It dims, it darkens, or it diminishes. It fades, it sags, or if you're in my house, it just breaks. Seems like absolutely everything that I own breaks, right? Or in some way or another, it loses its beauty but not our eternal inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, and it's unfading. So it will always be beautiful and brilliant and glorious. Last description. It's reserved 
in heaven for you. Which means it's not going anywhere. It will always be there waiting for you. No one else can take it. No one else can steal it. No one else can destroy it. Do you see how gloriously different this is and infinitely better than some family inheritance or even some earthly property in the land of Canaan? And it only gets better as we move on because the God who causes us to be born again and the God who provides us with this glorious inheritance is also, see, the God who guards us through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, this entire process from start to finish is the glorious work of God. That Jesus came on a mission to save our souls, not once and done, but for all eternity. Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if God justifies you, causes you to be born again to a living hope, then God is going to sanctify you, protect you, redeem you, mold and shape you all by faith and promises to glorify you. He promises to take you all the way home to heaven. And just think about how personal that is. That God is guarding you. That God is protecting you individually. That God is preparing you for heaven. And what's really interesting here is that the word being used can mean both keeping you from escaping as well as protecting you from being attacked. So what's intended? Maybe both, right? God preserving believers from escaping out of his kingdom. How? By causing them to persevere in the faith and God protecting them from outside persecution, which, by the way, is exactly what these people were experiencing. Why do I say that? Well, because that's the context of 1 Peter, the reality of persecution, which, by the way, is why he says in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed to you. Can you see how encouraging that is and how he constantly has this eternal perspective that God is promising to guard you, protect you, and take you all the way home to glory? So even in the midst of the difficulties of life, the trials and the tribulations, even if you're being persecuted for your faith, there's hope because there's an eternal inheritance waiting for you. And remember, it's a gift based on your relationship with Jesus, not a wage to be earned for your performance, which means we must keep an eternal perspective. In fact, it's as if Peter's saying, oh, dear believers, glory in your salvation, even as you experience the trials of your salvation because your soul has been saved for all eternity. You're promised life forevermore. Which is where he goes next. Rejoicing in number one, the glory of our salvation, even as we experience number two, the trials of our salvation. Look at what Peter says, verse 6. He says, in this, you rejoice. In what? In the glory of your salvation. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now notice how Peter constantly lands in the exact same 
place, right? Verse 5 says, believers are guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? In the last time. Here, verse 9, he ends by saying, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you see how consistent that is? Both verses are talking about Christ's return at the end of the age. So he wants these dear believers to maintain in the midst of persecution an eternal perspective. And I would suggest Peter's trying to do the exact same thing for us this morning, preparing us for the reality in this life of trials and tribulations. So the question is not, will trials come, but when are trials coming? The reason I believe that is because Peter's talking about various trials, trials of every kind. So moving all the way from just the normal, run-of-the-mill, basic difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world that is full of sickness and disease, broken relationships and broken homes, layoffs and liabilities, pain and sorrows, tears and trauma, all the way to being persecuted for your faith, threatened, even killed for naming the name of Christ. Obviously, those are trials of various kinds. But regardless of the size and shape, the severity and the regularity, trials are coming for all of us. Let me just pause. I know this is a simple application, but I think helpful, even as we heard the share time this morning. Do you know that trials are coming for you? Are you anticipating them? Are you expecting them? I have conversations with my kids and I just tell them, you know, one day the phone's going to ring and the doctor's going to say, you have cancer. I'm expecting that. I'm anticipating that. Are you thinking like that? Phone call. Most obvious example is death, right? You know the old adage, there's only two things in this life that are certain. What are they? Death and taxes. And I'm not here to talk to you about taxes, (laughs) right? I have nothing to say about that, but boy, oh boy, I have a lot to say about the reality of death. Trials. It's not if, but when. Do you realize trials are coming for you? Are you anticipating them? Are you expecting them? You know, I absolutely love how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 7. He says that everyone who hears my words and acts on them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Because when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, it did not fall. Why did it not fall? Because it's founded on the rock. But then he goes on and says, but everyone who hears my words and does not act on them is like a fool who builds his house on the sand. Why? Because when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, it did fall. And oh, so great was its fall. Why do I love that story so much? Because everyone experiences trials, right? Nobody suddenly, mysteriously escapes from the rain and the winds and the flood. Everyone experiences trials. What's the difference? The difference is how we respond. See, believers build their house on the rock which is solid and sturdy, steadfast and immovable. So they believe in Jesus regardless of the trials and the tribulations that go along with everyday life. They know with absolute clarity, with courage and conviction that all will be well in the end. Not in the midst of it, but in the end. Might be sitting there asking, what exactly does that look like? How is that possible. I mean, verse 6, to rejoice in our salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, we are being 
grieved by various trials. Well, I would suggest Peter gives us three answers right here in verses 6 to 9, starting with the idea of putting our lives in the perspective of all eternity, right? Because we already know that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope and promises to guard us through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Eternity past to eternity forward. God has us in the palm of his hand all the way from eternity past to eternity forward, which is an infinite period of time. You can't get outside of that. That should cause us to have an eternal perspective. James 4 Do you not know that your life is but a vapor here for a short time and then gone? That, in light of eternity, is nothing. Think about it with me. How hard is persecution if you know it's only going to last for a moment? Isn't that helpful to know? It's not an indefinite amount of time. It's only going to happen for a vapor of time. And then comes glory. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time. He's not saying that there's no suffering in this present time. He's saying consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that has been revealed to us. Or Peter's going to say it, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, that after you have suffered for a little while, there's the reality, you will suffer for a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What's my point with all of these verses? My point is that the first way to rejoice in our salvation, even in the most difficult of trials, is to think about those trials in light of our salvation. Namely, Jesus came to die to save our souls for all eternity. There's an eternal glory waiting for all those who have joyfully put their faith in Jesus. Number two. Second way to rejoice in our salvation, even in the midst of trials, is to recognize that God is sovereignly using those trials to prove the genuineness of our faith. That's B, the reason for our trials, which is why Peter says, look at verse 7, yes, you've been grieved by various trials now, when necessary, So the tested genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Notice at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, do you hear the eternal perspective? When Christ returns, God is using the trials in the here and now to test our faith, not to force us to stumble and reject the faith, but to purify our faith, to strengthen our faith, to confirm our faith so that it's rock solid, stable, and steady in the Lord Jesus, not in other things. I mean, that's why Peter uses gold as an analogy, because it was well known in the ancient Near Eastern world that craftsmen would use a refiner's fire to purify metals, including gold. Heating the fire to temperatures of something like greater than 1,000 degrees Celsius. What happens when you heat gold to that temperature? It liquefies the gold, which in turn causes the dross, the impurities, to, to bubble to the surface so that all of that dross, all of those impurities can be skimmed off the top. And what remains is 99.99. gold, otherwise known as 24-karat gold. What's Peter saying? He's saying God sovereignly and strategically places us in the refiner's fire, otherwise known as the pressure cooker of life, to burn off all of the dross, all of the impurities that still remain in a believer's faith, which proves their faith is grounded not in other things, but in the Lord Jesus Christ and longing for his return. And that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you're tempted to put your faith in Christ and your health, and then God brings sickness 
Oh my goodness, that's a pretty good reminder, isn't it? My only hope is not in this body because that's not going the right way, but in my resurrected body at Christ's return. Or if you're tempted to put your faith in Christ and your money and you lose your job, that's a pretty helpful reminder. My only hope is an eternal inheritance because I just lost (laughs) what I had here, right? It's an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved, never to be lost in heaven. And by the way, just to encourage you, notice how Peter says your purified faith is more precious than gold, which will ultimately perish, which means that God loves you so much that he's doing everything necessary in your life right now to prepare you for glory, where you will see your Savior face to face, which brings us to number three, the third way to rejoice in our salvation, even in the midst of trials, is to recognize that we will one day see the Lord Jesus face to face and hear him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, rejoicing in our trials. Peter says the joy of that day and the certainty of that future salvation can be and should be, and must be enjoyed right now in the present time. And how do we do that? How do we know that? Because he moves from the past to the present and right on to that future reality all in these last two verses. Look at what he says. For though you have not seen him, you love him. That's the past. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, That's now. That's the present, which causes you to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory right now in the present time, your present salvation. The fact that Jesus came on a mission to save our souls should absolutely impact our present reality. You see, there's a love for the Lord Jesus that causes us to rejoice even when we have not yet seen him. And even while we're suffering, even while we're experiencing trials, including persecution. And again, how is that possible? Because we know that it's God who's at work within us, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope, who's protecting us through faith for salvation to be revealed future when Christ returns in the last times, which has everything to do with the future reality, verse 9, that we will one day in the future obtain as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number four, to save our souls. But as we've just seen, that's a past, present, and a future reality right here in those two verses, right? So, So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will one day ultimately in the future be saved. We will one day obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And in that day, we will see our Savior face to face, and we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, this truth, I think, is why I love the song, It Is Well With My Soul, so much. If you know that hymn, we sing about the past and the present and the future realities of our salvation. I mean, just think with me about the verses. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. If you're a believer, that's a past reality, the salvation of your soul. But we also sing in that glorious hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, right now, present tense, whatever is going on in your life, cancer, strained relationships, loss of a job, physical pain, unmet expectations, or just the normal 
trials of life. God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Okay, now think with me. I know it's 4th of July weekend. I know it's a long weekend, but you can do it. Stay with me. Think with me. How does that hymn end? The climactic fourth verse. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Why? Because Jesus came to die to save our souls, which is a past, present, and future reality. And he uses all things. He uses the good things in life, doesn't he? To remind us that God is the one who brings blessings. And he uses the hard things in life, including the trials and the tribulations, even persecution, in order to prepare us for glory. The good things say, that's a taste, but it's going to be better. The hard things are, I don't want to stay. I want to go there, right? He uses all things. He uses the good things and he uses the hard things. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He uses all things in your life to prepare you for glory. Which brings us to three, the application of our salvation. How does all of this help us this morning? I, I can't help but think about William Blake and the clarity that he had, even in the midst of dying. It, it, it had a profound impact on him, visibly noticeable, right? His countenance became fair. His eyes brightened and he burst out singing of all the things that he was looking forward to in heaven. That's not going to just happen then, right? You, you got to know about that before you get there so that you have something to sing about. You hear what I'm saying? It's not going to spontaneously happen in your head. Oh, what's heaven going to be like? I should probably think about this. I got about like two minutes left, right? I mean, that's not how this is going to work. You cannot assume that kind of clarity is going to come to us just hours before we die. It must be cultivated in the here and now with a growing, steadfast, immovable, and unwavering eternal perspective. So here's the question, right? You're like, that's great. I'm on. I'm with you. I got you. How? Great question. How do we do that? Jonathan Edwards, resolutions. I have no resolutions of my own. I just read Jonathan's, and I think that's good. Right? Jonathan Edwards says in his resolutions, I am resolved to think often about my own death and the common circumstances that attend it. He also said, I'm resolved to live each and every day as if it was my last that's eternal perspective. He's thinking about it, resolved to think about it. Hey, what should I think about today? I don't know, look at my resolutions. Oh yeah, that's right. I need to think about the reality of death today and live in light of that reality. Let me just ask you, are you thinking about that reality? Are you so caught up in the here and now busyness of life, that you're not thinking about that moment in your life that is coming quicker than you know when you will breathe your last here on earth and you will breathe the next in eternity. And it's not like we don't know what happens after we die. First comes death, then comes the judgment. We will face God. 
And we are going to have to give an answer for how we've dealt with this life. And so you're here this morning. And I'm just wondering, you know, if, if your faith is not in the Lord Jesus, you've not wholeheartedly grabbed a hold of the reality that my sin is deserving of eternal punishment. And the only way for me to be right with a holy God, reconciled to him for all eternity, is if Jesus takes my sin on himself and he pays the debt that I know I owe. And in exchange, he gives me the righteousness that I absolutely need in order to be there. If you've not yet done that, then I am wondering if you're really ready to face God. And if you're really ready to give God an answer for why in the world you would have neglected so great a salvation that is described here as an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you to cling to something in this world. I don't know what it is that will never last. Why would you do that? Eternal inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, Reserved. Something that Jesus says, moths and rust will destroy or thieves will break in and steal. I'm appealing to you to trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul. To, to, to think from an eternal perspective, to not be caught up in everything that's going on in your life, which I'm not suggesting is not important and I'm not suggesting it's not exciting. I'm just saying you have to think from an eternal perspective, what am I going to say when I face God? I'm going to say, I'm with him. Jesus died to save my soul. And I just want you to think about what you're going to say. If you have put your faith in Christ, then I just want to ask you, what are you so worried about? In light of all that we've talked about this morning, what, what are you so worried about? You see, you can truly have a freedom from anxiety. Because if you've truly put your faith in Christ, then you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. God's the one who caused you to be born again. You didn't do that. And God's the one who's protecting you right now. You're not doing that. And for what? For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We know right now he's causing all things to work together to make sure you make it all the way home to glory. He's got good things specifically designed for you. He's got hard things specifically designed for you to make sure not only that you get there, but that you're prepared to be there. How awesome is that? That you're molded and you're shaped by the trials of life so you're more and more conformed into the image of his son and that your confidence is more and more in Christ alone for your salvation and not in other things. Let me plead with you this morning to fight against worry and anxiety and fear by maintaining an eternal perspective. You know, if I took a poll right now Right? I, I would find an incredible diversity about the things in your life that are stressing you out. I ask you a question. What is the thing that brings you the most stress right now? We would have such a variety of answers, wouldn't we? Health, money, relationships, 
right? The, the diversity would be incredible. And there would be an even greater variety of ways in which you would have, second question, how do you deal with that stress, right? That some of you would say things like, I eat Twinkies. I binge on Netflix, right? If you're honest, if you're really honest, like I'm stressed out, so what do I do? I escape my reality and I watch a movie about somebody else's reality, right? The stresses would be so diverse and the responses would be equally diverse. That's where we go naturally. We have to fight to keep an eternal perspective. Let me just explain to you how this works. Pick the thing that's stressing you out in your life. If you're honest, whatever that thing is, it's not your whole life. It's a percentage of your life, right? You're married, you got a great spouse, you got great kids, your job is going great, you got bad news, health is the issue. That's not the only thing in your life. There's a lot of great stuff in your life. So let's just say that hard thing is 10% of your life. Here's what we do. We don't look at anything else. We stare at what is causing us stress. And then 10% becomes the only thing that we see. And I would suggest it becomes the lens by which we see everything else. And Peter's pleading. I'm pleading that you would let the good news of the gospel, the glorious reality that Jesus came to save your soul for all eternity. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. He's bringing difficulties in your life to mold and to shape you, to prepare you, so that you're not just going to get there, but you're going to be prepared to be there. Let that lens be how you look at everything else in life. You understand what I'm saying? And anxiety and fear and worry go down. And rejoicing goes up. B, freedom to rejoice. I mean, just think about the logic of this connection. You're either worrying and complaining, <laughs> or you're resting and you're rejoicing. And again, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions are so helpful to think of my own death often in the common circumstances that attended and to live each day as if it was my last. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it, right? Philippians 1.21, he says that to live is Christ. He might as well say to live is hard, suffering, really hard to live is Christ. To die is gain. Not to die is the end. To die is gain. I'm wondering if you have that kind of clarity on your eternal well-being this morning, that you're actually looking forward to it with eager anticipation. Death is a glorious promotion, according to the Bible that you will experience a glorious inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And the joy in and of itself of seeing your Savior face to face. You rejoice now even though you haven't seen him. Oh my goodness, we're going to see him face to face. And then he's going to speak to you personally. And he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And to allow that reality to invade your present life because you're so looking forward to it. Right? That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this momentary light affliction. Is that how you think about your momentary light affliction? Or have you allowed it to consume your life and it's the only thing you see? He says, momentary light affliction, very purposeful, is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. Then he says this, beyond all comparison. Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time 
I'm not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So let me appeal to you to let the promise of that future glory invade your present reality so that you can rejoice even in the midst of trials and tribulations, knowing that God is molding you and shaping you and preparing you for that future glory, which is absolutely awesome. It will be awesome. Read the word. Fill your mind with the beauty of that glorious inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. So you might rejoice now, even as you long for it with eager anticipation. As we close this morning, we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. And cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Why is that? What's the chorus of that hymn? because I am bound for the promised land. Praise God. Jesus came to save our souls for all eternity that we might be bound for the promised land. Allow me to pray. Father, I'm asking that you would do a good work in our lives. Life is hard. Weeks are hard. Trials and tribulations are hard. Father, it is so easy for us to lose perspective, to be consumed in the here and now. I want to pray for every single individual here this morning that you would be doing a good work in their minds and in their hearts. Father, I pray for those, any of those who are here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would think about the reality of eternity. First comes death, then comes the judgment. Oh, I plead with you that they would run to the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that's available only in him. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would fight the good fight of faith to keep an eternal perspective. That we would look at all of life through the lens of the good news that Jesus came to save our souls. That the glory of that future reality would invade our present life. That we would be those who are free from anxiety and worry and fear and are rejoicing in our Savior regardless of the circumstances. Father, do that good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.